Honestly, this is my dream come true when the 8.30 service is rambunctious. I love it. I love it. So good. Everybody that's had a child understands the next two, the next two words or the next phrase, which is, do it again. Do it, do it again. 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 You know, and, and it, it, gosh, I mean, like, my wife teaches the ones here. And even the ones, they don't even know how to say that, but you read them a book, and they throw that junk down, and then they go get another one, bring it right to you. And you read that one, and then they're just like, and again, and again. And then it just keeps, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and, and it's, it, do it again, do it again. And, you know, even we went to Guatemala. This is, we used to go to Guatemala every year on, on a mission trip. And one year, um, we took Colby Engel along. He's one of our youth that's now grown up, and he's a CPA, so I guess I'm really old. And... Um, you know, we get the kids, and these little kids just are around us all day long, and Colby decides he's going to take them, and he can put a kid around each bicep, and they were kind of holding by the bicep, and he'll just kind of do this spin with the kids, you know, until they get tired. Well, there's 800 kids, so you're going to get tired, because everybody, do it again, and as if you did it for these people, and then finally, it's, it's getting to be about dusk, and Colby's like, you know, the finally, the next, do it again, and we have a video. I'll put it on my Facebook page tomorrow. <clears throat> Aubrey videoed it, Aubrey Parker videoed it, and here he is, and he gets the kids, and he goes around, and then just, you know, 800 kids later, your body's just tired, and he goes down and power slams those two small children into the ground. It was awesome. (laughs) Kids at that age are made of rubber. They bounce right back up. They're good to go, but verse four in this text is essentially, hey, God, do it again. God, do it again. What you did, do it again, God. Do it again. Now, this is a different kind of psalm of ascent. It's a different kind of psalm of ascent because it's written about 200 years later than all the other psalms. So this, after us having come out of Ezekiel, the psalm is going to be something that will tie correctly into it. But this psalm actually is a psalm that is, if you look at it, when the exiles return from Babylon to Zion, to Jerusalem. And this word that we get in here in verse 4 is restore or, or turn again, if it says, if it says in, your, in your NIV, restore, turn again, bring back the same as it used to be, do it again, God. And so, and so the word again, as, as we get it, is probably coming to us either from Ezra, Haggai, or Malachi, who is the writer of this psalm. And I also look, this psalm is very short, it's easy, so we can do some little grammatical things in looking at it, but also just kind of big big picture. But notice that the psalm begins with joy, and if you look between verse 3 and verse 4, you'll see this intentional space. Just like in our own poetry and our own prose, the author will use punctuation or spacing to let you know that something different is coming. So we've got verses 1 through 3, which are verses of praise, There is a pause, and then there's a transition from praise into prayer. And the prayer is a prayer that is a sober prayer, but is a prayer that is grounded in memory, filled with praise, but looking towards something else. And also as well, this kind of, you know, you probably didn't think about this, but this is a psalm that is essentially universal for all believers. Our life as a believer goes from death to life when we are saved. Joy true life, true freedom in the Lord. And then in between, there's actually this thing called life. There's life, and life is the in-between. Life is the in-between, but when we were raised to life from being dead before the gospel to the hope that we have is fulfilled in Christ, 
As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, right now we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see in part, but then we will know even as we are fully known. And so what is this in-between part? And what does the in-between part look like? So this is universal for all believers. Joy, life, real life, and the joy to come. So let's look at the text. We'll look at the text and start with verse 1. We need to understand that this, this verse 1 starts with history. And so you can just imagine that Cyrus here, Cyrus, the history of this verse, Cyrus decrees to the Jews, all of a sudden they've been, they've been exiled, they've been the exiles far away in a foreign country, and then the next thing you know he says, and you're going to go back to Israel. And so from one moment, in one moment the Jews go from being exiled to being returned to Israel. This, this is a common theme though you'll see in scripture. You got to realize that there is a moment where Pharaoh says, no, you cannot go. And Moses says, you're going to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, the angel of death comes on the day of Passover. And then what the next morning? All right, go. And you could just imagine all of a sudden these Israelites are now fleeing and running out of Egypt one day having been enslaved and the next minute free. And the next day for this text, people being in exile in Babylon to now coming back to Zion coming back and so we also see this as, as our this is our testimony as well we were dead in Christ we were dead in our sins and then once we we're saved we we're made alive in Christ and so you can imagine that these people as they write this psalm are looking back as they're going up into Jerusalem and they're looking around and they're saying to one another you realize there was once a time where the people who were heading up to Jerusalem just like we were now it was the first time they'd done it in a generation and they couldn't believe their good fortune. And they couldn't believe yesterday we were servants and now here we are coming back. I know it takes a little bit longer than that to walk. But you can imagine, we can't believe our good fortune. So in verse 2, we get this song and this worship. And you realize that the song and worship that happens in verse 2, that when the exiles were taken, and the, the people are taken from their land, and they're taken to Babylon, and they're plopped off as slaves to be servants there, to learn the Babylonian culture, we would even say to be defiled by pagan culture. you got to also turn back, and maybe you want to put your thumb into Psalm 137, because all of a sudden these people are singing. And in Psalm 137, Psalm 137 says, when we as the exiles were plopped down by the rivers of Babylon, the Babylonians taunted us. And they said, hey, why don't you sing us one of those songs about Jerusalem that you got? And what do they say? How can we sing songs and worship in a foreign land apart from our beloved God in Zion? And so now worship, now we're responding to the Lord. We have been brought back to some and we're a song and we're going to witness to the world and anyone that will listen, God's faithfulness. And so often as well, he says, and then the nations even saw what was going on and they turned and praised God. And, and this, is, this is nothing new. If you have been that person that you grew up and maybe you lived a couple decades as a pagan, a couple decades apart from Christ and then the Lord got a hold of you in his gospel and he changed you and you were resurrected from death to life through the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Even people around you that don't know the Lord go, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. God's gotten a hold of him. Oh my goodness. Praise God. They were a jerk. Now I like going and being on shift with them or, you know, I don't mind being in the soccer sideline with them anymore. So verse 3, we get this, the psalm of ascent is a great vertical worship psalm. 
We're going to testify about how good the Lord is. And we're going to testify and tell about how good his joy is. And we realize that one of the components of joy is memory. And so they say, listen, we remember. I remember. And in my remembering of what God has done, what he's doing, who he is, and what he is about, it triggers joy. And that joy then causes me to respond. Well, then we get the, the, the grammatical part of this psalm where we get the pause and you can look and you have this nice little space there in your text to let you know something different's coming and so verse four we get this do it again and the verb actually is turn again restore now you gotta realize that this is a bold ask this is a bold ask this is a bold ask this is not just return us to our land god has returned them to their land this is not just return us to our land god has returned us to our land the do it again is and god can you return it back to the original state that we remembered in being so good can you do it again can you take us back when all was right everything was good we were worshiping you can you not only bring us back here but can you do it again can you bring us back to that place and this is a very childlike prayer it's a very childlike prayer i don't know have you all have ever had a big group of people around a table at a restaurant and you have a waitress that is working hard she is working hard, and you got kids, and they are whiny and all that kind of stuff, and your waitress is working, she's just sweating, or he's just sweating, and they're bringing you everything, and all of a sudden you get your order, and here it is, and they've been taking your drinks and filling your drinks up, and they do, and they're working, and they fill your table up, and everybody's got something, and they go, is everybody good? We're good? Y'all are good? Okay, and then in a minute, like, the, the waitress gets five feet away from the table, and one of your kids goes, I want more ranch dressing. And what do you as a parent go, you will take that what you got, and you'll be happy about it. We're not bothering her again. Is that what happens at home, though? No. At home, mom is busting her tail, or dad is busting his tail. And we're just, you got this, you just, here's some more Sanka. You know, we're going back 20 years for Sanka. And here's this, and here's this, and here's this. And your mom, it's just like the Christmas story. My mom hadn't had a hot meal in seven years, you know, for herself. And mom sits down at the table, or dad sits down at the table, and you sit down, and the minute your butt, it's like an alarm was there when your butt hits the seat and it goes off. And it may, Can I have more milk and more ranch dressing? Absolutely no shame whatsoever. And you kind of go, yeah, you can. But it's a very childlike prayer. It's, it's God, you've already given me everything, but, but one more thing. But, but can you do it again, God? Can you do it again? It's the kind of ask that family and children understand well and that's where we as children of God are don't forget in Luke chapter 12 Jesus says don't fret little children for you know that it brings don't fret little children for you know that it gives the father great joy to give you the kingdom I thought that was go great not not just great joy to give you uh, you know Christmas presents on Christmas Eve but it gives your father great joy to give you the kingdom and so in verse 5 we remember that the exiles didn't return to a rebuilt Jerusalem. The exiles returned to a pile of rubble. If you want to read more about this, read the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, even Tobias and Sanballat are making fun of Nehemiah. And they're going, look at them. They're bringing out these burnt rocks, trying to put them back where they were. What are they thinking? They don't just return to rubble. They, work, they return to the work of rebuilding. They return to enemies that are actually opposing them. This is not easy. And so it begins to talk about, in this text, it says, those who plant in tears. And you can just imagine... The actual nature of how far the Jews have fallen hits them. Not just in exile, they've come back, but then when they see the destruction, it just gets them the task of rebuilding, the remembrance of the pain and loss. 
And so the response that they would plant in tears and harvest in joy means that when we sow into what God is doing in his kingdom, that God is faithful and it's worth the wait. And so when we get to verse 6, we see this whole idea. It says that those who plant the seed, they're going to weep when they go out, but they will sing as they return. And we've got to understand that to invest or to plant again, and maybe this might even be a marriage, maybe this might be a ministry, maybe this might be a church, but to plant again has cost. And you can realize that if you have very finite supplies, and we'll talk about grain, if you have a very finite amount of grain, you can grind it and have bread tonight. If you have a finite amount of grain, you can, you can grind it and have bread tonight. Or in tears, and with very much hope and trust, you can go out and plant it. Which is the most faith-filled thing you can ever do because no person has ever made a seed grow. But this is to say those who have, even though they will plant it at cost to them, when they go back out and they see the harvest of the Lord of the harvest who can be trusted, who is faithful, they will sing as they go out to the harvest. I titled my sermon this morning, uh, One Happy People. And uh, let's put that PowerPoint up. Okay, there we go. So, one happy people, and I got it from the message paraphrase of verse 4 in this text, which says, God was wonderful to us. Actually, the verse before says, the whole nations around us said, God's wonderful to you, and this verse is, God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. So, I want to reflect a little bit today about joy and happiness and uh, one of the things I did this week is I went and looked through all of the scriptures in the, the whole Bible that mention joy or rejoicing. And I found a theme in the Old Testament is that joy is almost always about a place, specifically a place where God is. The temple in Jerusalem is the focus of God's presence. And not always, but most of the time in the Old Testament, when you read about joy, it, I get to go up there. So the scripture that Pastor Amy preached on uh, and Pastor Paul last Sunday from the Psalms of Ascent number 122, I rejoiced when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. So for the Jewish people to have the privilege, whether it was uh, once in a lifetime or three times a year or whenever, when I get to go up to Jerusalem and they're singing and praising and sacrifices, that's how I associate joy. My daily life might be one sort of ordinary most of the time, but when I get to go there, that's a place of joy. The difference in the New Testament is that joy, instead of being in a place, is in a person. And so from the very beginning, Luke is the gospel of joy. Really, there's more about joy in Luke than the other gospels. And from the very beginning, I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born to you. So the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is the source of our joy. And it's not limited to having to be in one place. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to church to have joy. Like we can have joy wherever we have Jesus. Jesus is the source of our joy. And it's not dependent on singing and laughing and circumstances. Our joy is, uh, is, is not dependent on any of that. Even in the midst of suffering, we can have joy. So the, the, the New Testament letter of all the letters of Paul and James and Peter and John, the one that talks most about joy is Philippians. And where's Paul when he writes Philippians? He's in jail. And he's going like, but I, he, he talks more about joy in that letter in the midst of a jail cell than he does anywhere else. So you can take your joy with you when you have a New Testament focus on joy, which joy is about Jesus. 
So all that brings me back to sort of my one take-home point today. Uh, sometimes I have two or three or four. Today I only have one. Aren't you glad? But it has four parts. So, all right. So my one take-home part <laughs> is to distinguish between pleasure and joy. So I want you to think about what you shared with your neighbor a little bit ago. Was that pleasure or was it joy? So just let, let that uh, question sink in for a moment. Was that pleasure or was it joy? So we tend to think of pleasure, I, I, let me just say this, I don't know whether you do or not, but I, I don't want to imply that pleasure and joy are total opposites or that you can't have joy when you have pleasure or you can't have pleasure when you have joy. They're not opposites. They're more like what's called a Venn diagram, which apparently everybody knows except me, so I had to look it up. But a Venn diagram is when the two circles intersect, and joy and pleasure overlap, but they're not synonymous. So we need to understand the difference between the two, uh, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that because you're experiencing one, you're not experiencing the other. The idea for this distinction came from Eugene Peterson's very insightful book about the Psalms of Ascents called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the title. It's almost all you need to know. Like a long obedience in the same direction. We're going up. That's what the Psalms of Ascent are all about. And they have different themes, right? So in his chapter on Psalm 126, Eugene Peterson says this, and I'm going to read it. It's a little bit of a longer quote than I usually use, so... Try to focus here, pay attention, I'll read it slowly. Capture what he's saying here. We try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. And here's the key sentence from his quote. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. So our passion for entertainment, our passion for pleasure, really signifies as a culture we don't really grasp joy. So what is the difference, what are the differences between pleasure and joy? Let me just illustrate it with a couple of holiday uh, analogies coming up that just I jotted down when Paul was preaching. Thanksgiving turkey is pleasure. The ability to be a grateful person is joy. Opening Christmas presents is pleasure. Knowing Jesus as the reason we celebrate Christmas is joy, right? So again, I'm not saying that they are opposites or you can't have joy while you're having pleasure. I'm just saying they're different things. And in what ways then are they different? Well, if you seek pleasure, you may find joy, but if you seek it for pleasure's sake, you probably won't end up with joy. If you seek joy, then all of your pleasures will be deeper and they will last longer. Right? So we need to make the distinction between pleasure and joy. Let me offer a few contrasts here. First of all, pleasure is fleeting while joy is timeless. So we may think we've tapped into joy at a football game or a sexual encounter or a concert, maybe even a church service that we think that was really a lot of fun. 
But pleasure dissipates like summer in Hickory, North Carolina, right? We go from summer to winter, and like, where did summer go? Pleasure disappears so quickly. It's fleeting. So when we need another fix of the same thing to have more pleasure, then that's the indication that that's what we've been looking for, not joy. Pleasure offers diminishing return. So you need a, a better meal. You need a, 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 a bigger dose of the drug. You need a better presence if it's about pleasure, right? But when it's about joy, it's enduring. One of the things that fascinates me about Psalm 126 is if you read it particularly in the NIV, it goes from the past to the present to the future. Joy is timeless. And what we find in Psalm 126 is there's a memory of something that God did that's still there with us. And there's an acknowledgement that we are one happy people because of what God is doing now. And there's also the expectation that even in the midst of our suffering and trials, when we're in the midst of a desert, like the Negev, as it says in Psalm 126, there's the anticipation of what God will do. And this is very much like salvation, right? So when we tap into the idea that our salvation is past and present and future, I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved, that gives joy its timeless nature. And so pleasure is fleeting, but joy is timeless. Second, pleasure is physical while joy is spiritual. By physical, I mean those tingling sensations that those wonderful chemicals God placed in our body cause to flow when something really neat happens to us. So there's endorphins flow and those physical responses. They're not evil. Sometimes they do come from things that are wrong. That's not my point. But as long as those pleasures are within the boundaries of what God has given to us and allowed for us, they're not, the the pleasure, the idea of pleasure, the feeling of pleasure is not evil, but it's physical. And when when what you're seeking is only a physical pleasure, then when the pleasure is gone, it's gone. Again, it's fleeting. But spiritual, that is, of the Spirit, the joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So joy is something that the Holy Spirit does in us, and that's why it's able to endure. Third, pleasure is personal while joy is shared. Now, it's not that you can't experience pleasure with other people, right? Whether it's one other person or with a whole crowd at a football game, Uh, There's a lot of pleasure that is shared. That's not my point. But our measure of pleasure is whether this particular activity pleases me, right? So you enjoy a football game because there are lots of other people who have the same uh, affinity for that team as you do. There may even be people in the same stadium who are having a miserable day, but you don't care about them. Because your team is winning, and so pleasure is measured by its effect on me, and I will not go seek another pleasure event if it doesn't satisfy me. So I'm not saying that pleasure isn't ever in the company of others. I'm saying the measure of it is whether it is pleasurable for me, while joy is shared. Joy is other-centered. Joy, pleasure enters into a relationship saying, what is this person going to do for me? Joy enters into a relationship asking, how can I share the joy that I have with this person or with others around me? That's why pleasure is selfish with your money and your time and your resources. Joy is generous. What can I do to spread this joy around with others? And then finally, and maybe my one key point, is that pleasure results in happiness while joy results in worship, or joy prompts worship. 
Again, I'm not saying happiness is wrong. We are one happy people. We love being happy, and a lot of times when we're together and our joy is shared, it's a wonderful thing, and it looks like a a group happiness, but there's really a joy that's there because our pleasures have led us to a deep joy. I love how the psalmist writes in Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So this is a thing that you could say is some kind of political... Uh, international political um, moment of good luck for the Jews. So the Persians take over from the Babylonians. The Babylonians love to export people and take them away from home. The Persians love to send people back home because they think they'll be more content when they're in their own home. So you could say, wow, weren't the Jews lucky that shortly after their captivity, they had nothing to do with the fact that the Persians defeated the Babylonians and sent them back home? But the Jews don't look at it that way. They go, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The Lord is the one who did this. So something that was a pleasure, like it was really a pleasure trip back home, and they're singing and they're laughing and they're shouting and they're giddy and they're delirious. They're going, that was a God thing when that happened to us. And so it turns into worship. And then still, as they anticipate the future, it's like God is going to do something. We're going to go out uh, sowing. You hardly ever hear... Uh, joyful songs about planting season, you hear joyful songs about harvest season. So when we go out, even in the midst of a desert, and we are planting, we're weeping as we go, but we have the confidence that God will turn this into something that God can only do and turn that into joy. So I want to pause here for just a moment as we wind up, because uh, although the, the full pews today wouldn't indicate it, There is less emphasis today on Sunday morning being set aside for worship. So what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to preach to you because that's, as they say, proverbially preaching to the choir. You're here, right? But I'm going to remind you because we all need to be reminded, why is it that Sunday morning worship is so important for us? And one of the main reasons is that this is where we reclaim, rename, and rediscover our joy. Because there are pleasures all through the week, and there may be times of joyful worship through the week, but you come to gather around other people who do center their lives, not in a place, it's not about the place, but in a person and who have in common that we know and love and honor and serve and find our salvation, our security, our identity in Jesus Christ. And when you sit with them and the pews are filled with other people who are experiencing a range of circumstances in their own lives, And some have had deep, personal, life-altering grief as recently as yesterday and in the recent weeks. And they're still recovering that. And some have come from circumstances that have been incredible. And they just have found, they've just had their new baby. And they've just found the love of their life. Or they've just gotten that promotion. There have been joyful events. But what we have in common is not that we all come from the same circumstance. Is that in the midst of that circumstance, we all discover and acknowledge and turn that joy or that pleasure into worship. In other words, the reason that we worship is so that our pleasures will evoke God and his place in our lives. So whatever pleasures you've had, we come here to celebrate them as God things, as God moments, no matter what they were. And so that our worship is not dependent on pleasures for the next week. 
right? So my joy is not going to be dependent on the pleasures. There may be some overlap. It might be exciting and thrilling. But whether the pleasures are there or not doesn't alter the fact that the joy is there because the joy arises from the worship of the one who makes all of life meaningful, purposeful, and offers to us in the past and the present and the future the gift of his joy. Let's pray together. Father, like pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem who almost always did so in groups, we gather in this place to ascend into worship and to find in you and in one another as we seek you our deepest, highest, most durable joy. We claim what some have called a defiant nevertheless over the circumstances of our lives. Whatever they are, nevertheless, we find you, we claim you, we know you, we serve you. And we find in this time of worship together an inexpressible and glorious joy that no one can take away because it's not dependent on those around us or on the things that happen to us. So, Father, we thank you that you have done great things in our lives, and the greatest thing that you have done is in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by whom we have life and eternity and hope and joy. And we ask that this week our pleasures would turn into joys and our joys would not be dependent on our pleasures, that you would be the focus of our lives. Thank you for the joy, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.